CUA is the voice of urology in Canada. Europedia Canada is your resource for education. Visit CUA.org. Good evening, everyone. Um, welcome to our CUA Practice Changing Publications in Functional Urology, a year in review. So uh, I'm Ashley Cox. I'm a urologist at Dalhousie University here in Halifax. I'm Laura Nguyen. I am a urologist uh, in Hamilton at McMaster University. Uh, and before I go any further, I would like to say that if there is a disconnection tonight, just stay on the line, stay connected uh, if there's any disruptions and hopefully things will reconnect shortly. Um, and also at, um, we will be doing taking questions. So you can submit questions uh, at the Q&A panel at the bottom of your screen. And we're gonna try to save questions for the very end of the talk. Um, and uh, so just, just keep them posted as, you, as we go along. Uh, this is an accredited group learning activity under the Section 1 uh, Royal College um, MOC program. And you can claim a maximum of one hour of credit. So our objectives for tonight um, will be that in a case-based fashion, uh, we'll provide an update on some recent literature related to functional urology. So between Laura and I, we have two, uh, four cases, one on overactive bladder treatment, one on male urinary tract symptoms, one on IC bladder pain syndrome, and then one on recurrent urinary tract infections. So with that, we'll get started with the first case. So um, the first case is a 76-year-old healthy female who presents to your clinic with symptoms of OAB and urgency urinary incontinence. She voids 15 times during the day and has nocturia times three. Her voiding diary uh, shows that she voids volumes between 75 cc's with a maximum capacity of 250 cc's. She describes urgency. She has three urgency urinary incontinence episodes a day at least. She wears three pads per day, minimal stress incontinence, if any no hematuria, pain, or infections, or maybe about one infection per year. And she's concerned because she's been prescribed an anticholinergic medication um, by her family physician, and she hears it causes dementia. So the first uh, study that I want to present is one that was recently published in Neurourology and Neurodynamics. And this is a systematic review um, uh, and meta-analysis that looked at um, exposure of anticholinergics for three months or greater on the outcome of incident dementia, incident mild cognitive impairment, and change in cognitive function. And they also looked at the impact of OAB meds specifically, and they included studies that were published up until August of 2019 and included English um, language publications only. So they found 1,990 studies that they included, and of these, 21 met their outcomes for qualitative synthesis in their analysis. And those were studies that looked at the impact of anticholinergics um, and had an outcome of dementia or cognitive impairment. They included RCTs, case control studies, and cohort studies. Um, they had to have an adequate description of methodology, of course, and were a primary publication. So of these 21 studies, they found that six met the criteria for their meta-analysis um, for the outcome of incident dementia. Um, I don't think they found enough trials to look at actual cognitive impairment. So of the studies they included, three were case control and three were cohort studies, but together they had data from over 645,000 patients across five countries. So quite a large uh, meta-analysis. And what you can see here is the forest plot of the estimated rate ratios for the association for being exposed to three months or more of anticholinergics and the development of incident dementia. And their average risk ratio at the end of this study was 1.46. So in other words, having an exposure of three months or more to anticholinergics increased your risk of incident dementia compared to non-use by 46%. And they also found that the strength of association was increased with increasing exposure of anticholinergic medications. 
And specifically, there were two studies included in the meta-analysis that looked at OEB medications, and they also found that the risk ratio for anticholinergic use for OAB meds um, did have a positive effect on the outcome of incident dementia. And of course, it is important to realize that this meta-analysis did include um, studies with a high degree of heterogeneity, but still the outcomes were pretty, pretty profound. So you take this paper back to your uh, patient and you discuss the risks of, in of incident dementia with your patient in anticholinergic use. And after that discussion, you offer her a trial of Mirabegron. And now she wants to know if it is safe for someone of her age to take Mirabegron. And so luckily you have recently reviewed uh, European urology and found this um, uh, phase four randomized double blind trial looking at the efficacy and safety of Mirabegron in patients equal to or over the age of 65. This was the pillar trial published just last year. So this is the first prospectively designed RCT of Mirabegron efficacy, safety and tolerability in this age group. And it was a short 12 week study they included com um, community dwelling patients um, with greater than one incontinence episode a day, greater or equal to three urgency incontinence per day, and eight or more voids per day. And they randomized 445 patients to Mirabegron and 443 patients to placebo, and they stratified those groups, those younger than 75 and older than 75, at a large number of sites across North America. And their primary endpoints were a change from baseline to end of treatment in the mean number of voids in a 24-hour period and the number of incontinence episodes in a 24-hour period. This is a study flow diagram just looking at the trial design. So patients had a placebo run-in, they were randomized, they were assigned to either placebo or Mirabegron starting at 25 milligrams once a day. And then at four weeks and eight weeks, they could dose titrate up to 50 milligrams. End of tr um, treatment was 12 weeks and a follow-up phone call at 16 weeks to look at uh, some adverse uh, events. In their patient demographics, like most OAB trials, uh, was a 72% female. Now, 28% of these patients were over the age of 75, 80% were white. Um, interestingly, about 24% of them did have some mild cognitive impairment based on the um, assessment that they did for including patients into the study. And a large number of them had been diagnosed with hypertension in the past. So not perfectly well people, but overall um, healthy community dwelling people. The patients included in the study had about 10 voids in a 24-hour period and, at least, and on average 3.4 incontinence episodes in a 24-hour period. In terms of their results, they did find a decrease in voids per 24 hours with Mirabegron versus placebo, and this was statistically significant. And for their second primary endpoint, they did find a statistically significant difference with Mirabegron compared to placebo in the number of incontinence episodes in a 24-hour period. They did notice that a greater proportion of patients in the Mirabegron group achieved a 50% decrease in the number of incontinence episodes in a 24-hour period, um, so 72% versus 60%. And I think it's also important here to acknowledge that the patients in the placebo group did have some impact, and that's because of the nature of the design of OAB trials. Um, and uh, when they looked at the patients who were above 75 years of age, similar to our case that we're discussing, they noticed that the improvement in the number of incontinence episodes was slightly less compared to the younger population, um, but they still saw uh, an improvement in the number of voids um, in a 24-hour period. So still um, effective in the um, oldest population or those over 75. In terms of safety, um, so treatment emergent adverse events were reported in 47% uh, of the Mirabegron patients, but also 39% of the placebo patients. Um, cardiac disorders, um, excuse the typo, um, in 2%, uh, sorry, sorry, not a typo, in nine of my mirror, of the Mirabegron patients versus five of the placebo. Um, and the most common um, TEAEs in the Mirabegron group were in your UTIs, headache and diarrhea, no change in cognitive assessment, but that's only at 16 weeks and that would be to, uh, to be expected. Um, and so you tell your patient based on the results of the PILLAR trial um, that you feel that the medication or Mirabegron has been reported to be safe and effective for someone in her age. So as she gets up to walk out of the office, she has one more question. She says, is Mirabegron the only option in this class of medications? 
So you want to talk to her about a trial that's just been published in uh, the Journal of Urology in August uh, 2020, which is a randomized controlled trial, double blind of a um, placebo and active control looking at Vibegron. And Vibegron, otherwise known as Gemtiza, is a novel, highly selective beta-3 agonist which with a long half-life. Uh, it does not inhibit the CYP2D6 pathway, so it's thought to reduce drug-drug interactions. And there have been phase two and phase three studies that have been shown that or have shown that Vibegron is safe and effective um, as a treatment for OAV symptoms. Um, and this is the EMPOWER trial. So this is an international phase three trial of Vibegron, 75 milligrams once a day versus an active control of tolteridine, four milligrams once a day versus placebo. Uh, again, a 12-week study, which was relatively short of adult patients, and they included patients with OAB dry and or urgent continence. Um, the pillar trial that, that I just talked about, just to clarify, that was um, OAB wet patients only. But so in this EMPOWER trial of Vibegron, they used seven-day voiding diaries at baseline week two, four, eight, and 12. And their primary endpoints were a change from baseline to week 12, again, in the average number of voids per day and average number of urgency incontinence episodes per day. Uh, and they had um, 1,518 patients randomized at 199 sites. Patients were slightly younger um, than what they were in the other trial, but still 43% still, um, of them were 65 years of age or older. Majority of them were white females uh, and 23% of them had OAB dry. Most of the mean average voids per day was 11 and 3.5 urgency incontinence episodes per day. They had the same primary endpoints as the pillar trial, and they did find that um, in comparison to placebo, there was a decreased average number of voids per day for Vibegron compare, um, compared to placebo, uh, and in addition, a decrease in the average number of urgent continence episodes per day for Vibegron versus placebo. Um, so nine patients in the Vibegron group uh, and six in the placebo group and 14 in the tolteridine group discontinued the medication uh, because of adverse events. Um, in terms of those adverse events that were more common in the Vibegron group than the placebo group, that included headache, nasopharyngitis, diarrhea, and nausea. Uh, and the most common adverse event in all three groups uh, was actually urinary tract infections. Uh, and overall, uh, in terms of high blood pressure, which we generally talk about with beta-3 agonists, it seemed to have a lower percentage of patients in the Vibegron group developed hypertension compared to tolteridine. So after explaining the results of the EMPOWER trial, you inform the patient that although Vibegron or Gemtiza has been approved by the FDA in the USA as of December 2020, it is not yet approved by Health Canada. So yes, for now, Mirabegron is the only option in this class of medications in Canada. And that's it for case one. So moving on to case two, um, this is on male lower urinary tract symptoms. This is our 67-year-old man, and he presents with daytime frequency every one to two hours. He has nocturia three times per night and is also bothered by urgency and occasional urge incontinence for the past two years. Um, he has mild obstructive symptoms as well, but he's been on Flomax for the last um, five years, which has improved his stream, and he feels his stream is reasonably strong. He has no dysuria, hematuria, or systemic symptoms. On his physical examination, um, everything is unremarkable other than a mildly enlarged, smooth, non-tender prostate on his digital rectal exam, and his urine analysis is normal. So you consider adding a second medication to target his storage symptoms. Luckily, over the past year, um, three studies, um, including two randomized controlled trials, have been published uh, looking at Mirabegron as add-on therapy for uh, two tamsulosin for the treatment of overactive bladder in men with lower urinary tract symptoms. The first of these is the MATCH trial published in um, European Urology. This was a double-blinded, um, randomized, placebo-controlled trial of over 500 men. And uh, these were men in Japan and Korea who were started on 0.2 milligrams of tamsulosin. 
um, and half of the group was randomized to um, having 50 milligrams of mirabegron added to that, and the other half was given placebo. They had a four-week screening period of um, where they all received placebo, followed by a 12-week trial. And again, this was a bit of a short trial, just 12 weeks, um, where they were either on placebo or the mirabegron. Their primary outcome was a change in mean number of micturations per 24 hours. And their secondary outcomes included uh, the mean volume voided, mean number of urgency episodes in 24 hours, um, number of urge incontinent episodes, and number of nocturia episodes. And they also looked at scores on several um, lower urinary tract symptom questionnaires, including the OAB symptom score, IPSS, and OABQ. So they started out with 730 uh, patients in the screening period. Uh, several patients were included, over 100 patients were included because they didn't meet inclusion criteria. They uh, withdrew or had an adverse event on the tamsulosin uh, 0.2 milligrams in placebo had a protocol violation or other reasons, uh, which left 568 to be randomized. Um, a small number in each group were excluded at that point, either because they didn't take the study drug or because uh, they had no evaluable efficacy data. Um, from that point, uh, they had 283 patients in the group that received the placebo and 282 in the group that received Mirabegron. Um, and most of those patients, uh, other than 10, uh, sorry, 13 and 11 in each group, uh, respectively, completed the trial. And again, the reasons for discontinuing were pretty similar in both groups. So looking at their primary outcome, which was micturitions uh, in 24 hours, Mirabegron or the Mirabegron group um, had a larger decrease in the number of micturitions um, compared to the placebo group. Um, and there was also a significant difference in the uh, mean volume voided per micturition in the mirabegron group compared to the placebo group. Differences were seen in urgency, urgent content episodes, and nocturia, but these uh, findings were not statistically significant. And then again, they had the um, symptom scores, and these are small, uh, but the bottom line is that all of the uh, symptom score total scores were uh, significantly better in patients who were in the treatment group compared to those in the placebo groups. And they also looked at adverse events. And these were similar between groups as well. Um, of note, one patient in the placebo group had angina uh, that was thought to be drug related, but the remainder of the cardiac side effects and adverse events were not thought to be drug related. Um, also, no patients in either group required catheterization for urinary retention, but um, three patients in the Mirabegron group did have an increase in their PVR compared to only one patient in the placebo group. So you think about that, but you say, you know, I don't have a lot of patients on point two of tamsulosin, but luckily we have this um, second study, the PLUS trial published in the Journal of Urology. So this was um, a multi-center, double-blind, randomized, placebo-controlled trial that included 700 men. They included all men over the or men uh, over the age of 40 years old, but um, over half of them were over the age of 65. So this applies to our patient in our case. And all of these men had been receiving tamsulosin for at least two months before the start of the trial. Um, they also had a four-week run-in period, after which patients were randomized and um, given either placebo or placebo or mirabeg on 50 milligrams. During their run-in period, they actually had the patients who were randomized to mirabegron actually received 25 milligrams. So they had a graduated increase in the mirabegron, um, whereas the other patients just had placebo only. And again, they had 12 weeks of follow-up for their study. Their main outcome again was uh, the number of micturations per 24 hours. And the other outcomes that they looked at were the mean volume voided, um, mean number of urgency episodes, mean incontinence episodes, and then some questionnaires. And they looked at some different ones, but also the IPSS, OABQ, and then the PPBC and the Tufts. Again, they started with a larger number of patients at the screening period. Several patients, um, a large group discontinued before run-in and they didn't give reasons why, um, but a thousand patients entered the run-in period at which point 294 were excluded. Um, this left 715 to be randomized, which were randomized to um, 359 to the tamsulosin and placebo group 
and 356 to the Tamsulosin and Mirabegron group. So, um, you know, they again also lost patients who discontinued the study, but numbers were similar in both groups and for similar reasons. So this is their primary outcome, which was the number of voids per 24 hours. And they also found a statistically significant difference um, with a benefit to the treatment group compared to the placebo group. These are their secondary outcomes. Um, and of note, oh, it's a little bit smaller than I expected, but um, the uh, urgency episodes and urgent continent episodes was statistically significant um, between the Mirabegron group and the placebo group. So um, treatment-related adverse events were a bit different in this uh, study compared to the other study. They had a slightly higher um, rate of uh, TEAEs overall in the placebo group, but drug-related uh, TEAEs were higher with Mirabegron. Of note, um, there were four drug-related serious TEAEs um, noted in three patients, a patient with Mirabegron who had an acute MI and cerebral infarction, a patient on Mirabegron um, with angina, and one on placebo with a lacunar stroke. They also had some patients um, requiring catheterization in the Mirabegron group too. The only one was considered drug-related. The other patient was actually after discontinuation of Mirabegron, um, and he had catheterization required due to a surgical procedure. Um, but overall, they did have a higher rate of retention with six patients in the Mirabegron group uh, compared to only one in the placebo group. So uh, you discuss these trials with this patient, and you therefore feel comfortable prescribing Mirabegron for him. His storage symptoms improve significantly, and he has no adverse events, and his PVR remains low. Perfect. Which takes Thanks, us to Laura. our next phase. So we're going to move on and do a brief case uh, on interstitial cystitis bladder pain syndrome. So the patient that now presents to your office is a 70-year-old female patient, and she presents with severe bladder pain, frequency, and nocturia. You look at her voiding diary, and she voids 20 times during the day and four times at night. She denies any incontinence, hematuria, or infections. Uh, her voiding diary also shows that her maximum capacity is about 100 to 125 cc's, and she had a urine culture done that was negative. Her urinalysis was also negative. And she's been told um, by her family physician that she likely has interstitial cystitis bladder pain syndrome and she's been waiting quite a while to see you in your office and she's read a little bit about this already and she asks you and wants to know if you think she has ulcers in her bladder based on what you know already so you can use some information to answer her question uh, that comes from a recent systematic review and meta-analysis that was published in the journal of urology uh, and this is looking at um, Hunter lesion phenotype in IC bladder pain syndrome patients. And this group sought, sought to answer the question, are there any differences between patients with IC BPS with and without Hunter lesions in terms of their demographics, clinical presentation, comorbidities, urinary marker profiles, and treatment responses? And they did this to see if we can really classify ulcer patients as a separate phenotype. So um, they um, include, looked at multiple things, including, as I said, demographics, pain scores, um, characteristics of the urinary symptoms, bladder capacity, and several comorbidities, things that are associated with bladder pain syndrome, like depression, fibromyalgia, IBS, migraines, TMJ, uh, a few other things listed above here, and, and including urinary marker profiles, microbiome data, and treatment response. What they included in the meta-analysis portion of this review was age, sex, pain scores uh, based on commons um, like the ICSI, ICPI, and PUF scores, urinary frequency, nocturia, and uh, symptom duration and capacity. Uh, so they included 59 of the 237 articles that they identified in their literature review, and 23 of these were included in their meta-analysis. So when they looked at demographics comparing the articles in their meta-analysis, they found that in general, Hunter lesions patients were older than patients with non-Hunter lesion disease. 
They found no difference in sex, so um, male and female patients were about the same. In terms of their clinical presentation, there was actually no difference in the pain scores between patients who had ulcers and patients who didn't have ulcerative disease. But patients with ulcerative disease generally had higher urinary frequency, nocturia, ICSI, and ICPI symptom scores, and a lower systematic bladder capacity <coughs> in the data that they retrieved from the studies included in their meta-analysis. When they looked at comorbidities, uh, interestingly, depression was similar between hunter lesions and non-hunter lesion groups, but no other conclusions could be drawn. And that's interesting because often we'll associate things like fibromyalgia and other uh, or systemic pardon me, uh, illnesses with non-ulcerative disease. Um, when they looked at urinary marker profiles, so obviously this information was only present in some of the studies they included, um, but they did find that the reports in the literature showed hunter lesion patients had higher <coughs> levels of pro-inflammatory cytokines and chemokines. Uh, and interestingly, no studies um, uh, found, uh, there were no studies found that actually had microbiome data. There are a few studies um, that associate uh, Epstein-Barr virus, BK, and JC polyomavirus with hunter lesion patients. <coughs> Uh, and in terms of treatment response, um, uncontrolled studies, so just looking at hunter lesion patients and treatments they received, um, those patients do seem to respond from triamcinolone injections and fulgurations of ulcers, whether it's re uh, resection, laser ablation. Uh, and there were one small study looking at uh, hunter lesion patients that did have a, sm a small response with oral steroids. And when they looked at studies that compared things with hunter lesion patients and non-hunter lesion patients. Um, cyclosporin A seemed to be a more effective treatment for hunter lesion patients and not surprisingly major reconstructive surgery, um, whether it's a cystectomy or um, uh, previous reports showing uh, augmentation cystoplasty and super trigonal cystectomies was more likely to benefit patient who had ulcerative disease compared to non-ulcerative disease. And in terms of Botox, there was actually conflicting data. So in conclusion, they found that hunter lesion patients likely are a distinct entity or phenotype of IC bladder pain syndrome, and certain demographic characteristics can be used to give you an idea of who those patients are, but really cystoscopy is still required to definitively diagnose those hunter lesions. So you tell that all to your patient, and based on what you know about her, you suspect that she may have Hunter lesions or this phenotype of IC, but you recommend a cystoscopy under local anesthetic. And when you do that procedure, it does reveal a circumscribed reddened mucosal area with small vessels radiating towards the central scar with a fibrin deposit in the middle. And that's how the uh, previous study actually describes a Hunter lesions. And there's a picture of one there. Well, the patient wants to know now, how are you going to get rid of these ulcers? Will they come back and when? And as we all know, ulcers generally do um, uh, respond to cauterization um, or even injection of triamcinolone based on some small studies. And this recent randomized control trial actually looked at whether resecting these lesions versus just coagulating them made a difference in terms of the um, effectiveness and duration of response. And this was published recently in European Urology. Um, and so they wanted to see if actually resecting these lesions could completely eliminate Hunter lesions altogether. And this was a study out of Korea. Um, so they included adult patients who were over the age of 20 with evidence of Hunter lesions on cystoscopy at some point in the last two years. Patients had to have a score, a visual analog scale score of greater or equal to four, greater than or equal to 12 on the ICSI and ICPI, and greater or equal to 13 on the PUF score. Um, all patients uh, were blinded. Um, and it was a single surgeon that did this. Uh, and for the resection, you um, used a resectoscope um, with bipolar loop and for the cauterization, a rollerball with a continuous flow, um, trying to keep the bladder capacity quite low to prevent over distension and bleeding. And um, uh, biopsies were done for all of the patients that had cauterization done. Interestingly, two of those actually showed malignancy. 
and their follow-up uh, was at one, three, six, and 12 months postoperatively, and they did the um, uh, listed um, avoiding diaries for three days in addition to the um, uh, questionnaires listed there. Now, they did scopes at three months and 12 months, and they also did scopes if patients reported that their pain was recurring. Patients were randomized one-to-one, -one, and this was an intention to treat analysis. So their primary outcome was recurrence-free time after treatment, and that was defined as a case in which pain returned to the baseline level and new Hunter lesion was identified on cystoscopy. And then they also looked at change from baseline in terms of urinary frequency, nocturia, urgency, and symptom score um, uh, scores. Um, their results are shown here. And so they had 59 people in the cauterization group compared to 63 patients in the resectoscope uh, group, or sorry, in the resection group. These are very large numbers of patients with ulcerative disease, I would say. Median age of the patient was about 65 and the majority were female. Um, in terms of the recurrence-free time, there was actually no statistically uh, significant difference in those patients that had their ulcers cauterized versus those that had their um, ulcers resected. Maybe a month or so, not even longer in the resection group. Um, in terms of risk factors for recurrence, they didn't identify any. Um, the voiding diaries showed no difference um, and, um, and their pain severity really didn't show uh, any difference either. But not surprisingly, when they looked at complications, um, there were more bladder perforations uh, in the group who had the ulcers resected, so 7.9% um, and 3.4%. And they did comment that some of these patients required further procedures, but the details weren't specified. I think if anyone had actually required a major operation um, to fix a bladder perforation, then that would have been listed in the results. Um, equal number of patients requiring catheterization for hematuria and readmission was higher in the resection group. So um, certain, certainly more complications uh, from resecting these lesions comparing, compared to just cauterizing them. So based on this recent evidence, you suggest cystoscopy and transurethral cauterization of the ulcers um, and you inform the patients that hopefully um, they will be, she'll be pain-free for a year, but likely these ulcers uh, will recur. And that's it for case three. So case four is recurrent urinary tract infections. So this is our patient. She's a 60-year-old lady with recurrent urinary tract infections and in she has typical symptoms, frequency, urgency, dysuria, and a change in her urine odor whenever she has an infection. She has no gross hematuria, fevers, or flank pain. She is, has had four symptomatic culture-proven UTIs in the past six months. And of note, these were not um, all growing the same bacteria, so we don't worry about a persistent infection here. She is having infections someday. She also has vaginal dryness and pruritus and also reports um, insertional dyspareunia. Her past medical history is notable for stage one estrogen receptor positive breast cancer for which she's currently on tamoxifen. You would like to start vaginal estrogen for UTI prevention and for her genitourinary symptoms of menopause. Luckily, the American College, um, sorry, the American Journal of Obstetrics and Gynecology recently uh, published an expert review specifically for these patients uh, for management of genitourinary syndrome of menopause in female cancer patients with a focus on vaginal hormonal therapy. This is actually a really great resource. Um, they have some great tables within the guideline or within their statement. Um, that kind of guide treatment and can give some further information. Um, and I know this is small, so I am going to blow up one little piece here that applies to our patient. And there is one section under breast cancer that says for ER positive breast cancer on tamoxifen, if they have favorable factors, which include things like being a lower stage or being metastatic with a short, uh, long -term, um, a short long-term um, lifespan expected, then uh, they can can be started on local hormone therapy. Um, because tamoxifen is an estrogen receptor antagonist in breast tissue, any potentially absorbed systemic estrogen um, from the vaginal estrogen should be blocked. So it should not affect her breast cancer treatment. So 
you confidently start her on topical vaginal estrogen um, and you culture her urine because she's currently symptomatic and her urine culture grows pan-sensitive E. coli. While you're thinking about antibiotic choices, um, you look at the Journal of Urology, which recently published this um, systematic review and meta-analysis comparing phosphomycin to um, any other comparator antibiotics for the treatment of acute uncomplicated urinary tract infections in women. So this was a systematic review and meta-analysis. They included 15 studies of over 2,000 female patients with uncomplicated UTIs. So no fevers, um, no obstruction, no catheters, no pyelonephritis. Um, their outcomes were primarily the efficacy of phosphomycin compared to any other antibiotic. And they looked for both clinical efficacy based on symptom improvement um, and microbial cure based on urine culture. And then their secondary outcome was the safety of phosphomycin compared to these other antibiotics. So um, overall, they showed that there was no difference in phosphomycin compared to other antibiotics um, in terms of clinical or microbial um, analysis. And this is the uh, plot for the um, clinical uh, cure or symptom improvement. And this next one, is the one for um, microbial cure, which similarly shows no difference uh, between phosphomycin and all these other antibiotics that they've been comparing to. And then when they looked at adverse events, there were no differences in um, the phosphomycin compared to the other antibiotics. So one thing that they did notice, I sorry, I think um, I just was missing a slide there, that uh, they had, oh, I think- Is that the right side, oh, Lara? No, where, I, I just think I, I missed uh, including the chart, but there's, um, the one thing that they did notice was that compliance was better with the phosphomycin, obviously, because it's just the one dose. So you can go ahead and go to the next slide. So you treat her with one dose of phosphomycin. Her symptoms resolve quickly, and she has a long period following initiation of vaginal estrogen during which she is symptom-free and infection-free. That's the end of that case. Perfect. Thanks, Laura. So um, we uh, finished with lots of time for questions. So if, um, if you have any questions, please feel free to type them into the panel at the bottom of your screen, uh, of which we cannot see. So hopefully they'll, they'll be posted and we'll do our best to field those questions for you. Um, so in case number one, uh, the question is why overactive bladder in the first place? Um, so uh, I'm not sure I totally um, understand exactly what is meant by that question. Um, it, if it's, if it's asking why, if the question is, or would we do any other investigations to see why the patient has overactive bladder? I think um, if, I, if that is the question, um, why overactive bladder in the first place, then I would uh, say that I think you could start treatment based, you know, if you have your history, physical exam, your voiding diary, your analysis, your culture, um, I would generally sometimes do an assessment of your, of, uh, your, with a Euroflowin scan in my office, but I think it is reasonable to start treatment for overactive bladder in that case. Uh, and uh, if symptoms didn't improve, uh, think about uh, moving forward with further investigations such as cystoscopy and neurodynamic studies. Yeah, I agree. I would do the same thing. Um, I don't typically do an upfront um, cystoscopy or urodynamics on these patients. I think moving forward with the treatment is very reasonable. And I think that's in line with the CUA guidelines as well. I, did, I don't think I, I would ask a few other important questions on history in terms of bowel function, neurological uh, status, any new symptoms, uh, and um, any history of radiation or that type of thing and identify any risk factors. Uh, but they, uh, and also obviously medication and surgeries and that type of thing. But I didn't include all of those details just in the interest of time. Recurrent IC with hunters, uh, what can we do for prevention? 
That's a great question. Um, do you want to answer, Ashley, I, or I can, do you want me I to can give my two cents on it? We can not resect them based on the trial that I presented. Resection is not going to make a big Just difference. Pulverize them. Yeah. Yeah. So um, you know, I've always been in the I, habit of biopsying. Um, sorry, I don't want to. Yeah. Um, so I think you know it was really interesting that the study showed that um, you know while resection didn't necessarily prolong the symptom-free interval after the treatment, um, I think you know biopsying them if you're only going to fall graze is really important. Hundred percent agree. Yeah. Mm -hmm. uh, in terms of prevention, uh, I hate to say it, and uh, I'd love to hear it from anybody if they know of anything uh, that really works for preventing these ulcers. But I. Um, you know, I talk to patients about dietary factors, um, but I, I really don't know of any great way to prevent these ulcers from coming back. We do know that, or we, it, it's thought that, you know, ulcerative disease is not a result of having non-ulcerative disease for a long period of time. Um, they are likely two distinct entities. So if you have a patient with bladder pain syndrome and they don't have ulcers, uh, and I would say even if they have glomerulations on bladder dilatation, if you choose to do that, uh, you're not there's that yeah, that person's not going to turn into an ulcerative IC patient if they're they're two mm -hmm. separate entities. Would you agree with that, Laura? I agree. Yeah, I agree with that completely. Um, I think patients with Hunter's lesions present with the Hunter's lesions and the ulcer in the ulcerations. Um, one thing that I've been doing based on some trials and um, based on some reports and studies from the United States is give cyclosporin for patients. Mm -hmm. um, and I think about that. Before Ashley, I usually give cyclosporin um, twice a day for one month and then daily um, indefinitely. It's a low dose, uh, but it seems to be, you know, anecdotally working in my practice. And there are some studies that support it. Um, but I do monitor patients for renal function, abnormalities, or any other side effects from the cyclosporin as well. And do you find, like, how long do you keep patients on? So I, I think the trials on site for cyclosporin are probably some of the most convincing for any treatment for IC, specifically for ulcerative disease. Um, but because of the high side effect profile, uh, and I'm not comfortable prescribing that medication frequently or commonly, so I haven't used it yet. And I think it's a great thing that I would like to start using. So how, how long do you keep people on it for? And have you seen any bad side effects? So I had one patient, I'll answer your second question first. I had one patient who did have some renal deterioration, um, which may have been multifactorial. And we stopped the cyclosporin because she, she really only took it for a couple of weeks. So I don't know if it was incidental, but um, she did have a decline in her renal function. And, um, you know, I wonder if it was related. You know, when we stopped the cyclosporin, she did very quickly have a recurrence of the oh. ulceration. So, mm -hmm. um, but otherwise, you know, most of the studies and the practices that I've seen um, and spoken to people who are giving cyclosporin, most people do it indefinitely, as long as patients are asymptomatic and are tolerating it well. And then most patients, honestly, I talk to them about I do. I follow them indefinitely. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. And uh, most patients who I speak to um, have had multiple fulgurizations, even by me, before we start. Mm -hmm. um, or start cyclosporin and potentially have had many fulgurizations by many other people in the past. And many of them do not want to ever stop the cyclosporin because it's given them such a long symptom-free interval. Yeah, I, th I think that's important. Something that we should probably all have a little bit more teaching on. In what way are you using phosphomycin as prophylaxis? One package weekly for how long? So typically, um, when I give prophylaxis for urinary tract infections, I give it for three months, and then I stop and reassess. Um, occasionally, if a patient has a quick recurrence after the three months, I'll extend it to six months. So I usually do once a week for um, three months to start with. I have had patients who've had breakthrough infections on the phosphomycin, usually close to the time when they're due for their next dose. So I have occasionally put people on twice a week phosphomycin. Um, I know ID for a therapeutic dose likes to give three um, grams every three days times three doses uh, for complex UTIs occasionally. I don't do that um, commonly, but you know it makes me feel comfortable giving it twice a week for three, for three months. What about you? 
Yeah, I would be comfortable using it once a week or even twice a week for three months. I have to admit, I don't usually uh, use phosphomycin for um, pro my prophylactic patients. I would generally start with macrobid, but if um, they couldn't have macrobid for whatever reason, I think that it's a reasonable choice. I think it, I've typically used it in um, patients with ESBL who don't have mm -hmm. a lot of options. Um, though, you know, macrobid is often good for ESBL as well. So. ID, ID in our center. Go ahead. Go ahead, Laura. <laughs> ID in our center often claims that we want to save phosphomycin for drug-resistant bacteria and discourage its use in primary treatment setting. Do you encounter similar pushback in your centers and what is your response? So um, I, I can go first. Uh, in Hamilton, I don't see a pushback from ID about phosphomycin. I think there is um, good data that phosphomycin resistance doesn't seem to be an issue currently, and phosphomycin um, is not more prone to um, developing resistance. And even in the, I didn't present it, but even in the meta-analysis, there was no um, increase in antibiotic resistance in the phosphomycin arms of the trials included um, in that review. So I think I would just present that data to the ID department if that's what they were saying. Um, I have heard people say that before, that you know we should save phosphomycin for when we really need it. Um, but I don't necessarily agree with that. And, and I would um, say, just as I said earlier, I usually will start with macrobit and not use, to use phosphomycin, but that's also just because I don't think of it right off the top of my head. But I think it's really important to be in contact with your ID department and just be aware of your local uh, antibiotic resistant patterns with any antibiotic that you use. I think that's really the most important thing, particularly when looking at um, prophylactic agents and just basing it on what cultures your patients have had in the past. And I think also making sure that they, you truly are treating UTIs and, um, and uh, not something else like bladder pain syndrome. Does tamoxifen not also affect estrogen binding in other tissues than breast, i.e. vaginal epithelium? It's a great question. Um, so my understanding is that tamoxifen targets breast tissues specifically. Um, I don't know if you know differently, Ashley? I don't know. Um, and it may have to do um, with the... So, um, Correct me if I'm wrong, um, 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 aromatase uh, inhibitor, right? Aromatase inhibitor with tamoxifen, right? So tamoxifen is no. not an aromatase inhibitor. Oh, okay. The so I'm getting confused. Yeah. Um, Sorry, I was going to say just thinking of the fatty tissue I, in the breast compared to vaginal mm -hmm. epithelium. But aromatase inhibitors do cause kind of more significant GSM. Um, and vaginal dryness symptoms. So, you know, one of the recommendations from that paper that we presented actually is if you have a patient on an aromatase inhibitor is to not give a vaginal estrogen um, or any topical estrogens and to consider talking to the oncology team about switching to tamoxifen and then adding in vaginal estrogen if necessary. Curious about each of your approaches to management of Hunter's lesions and whether this study changes your approach. What's your opinion on triamcinolone injections? Um, so uh, I love um, triamcinolone injections. I'm trying to do them more and more. I think I'm doing one tomorrow or on Friday. <laughs> um, and I, I think it's uh, something that's underutilized. And I think the key, the main thing with Hunter lesions is making sure you've done your cysto to identify them if they're there. Um, and I, I biopsy and fulgurate and inject steroids. And I, I, for some patients, I do use Botox with good success. And as mentioned, I'm looking forward to uh, learning from Laura how to use cyclosporine. Um, I also typically will biopsy and then fulgurize. I don't typically resect, so you know I am glad to see this um, study that you presented, Ashley, about, you know, potentially no increased benefit of that. Um, I've always been concerned about, you know, these thin bladders and these little ladies, um, often who I don't want to perforate. Um, so I'm glad that fulgurization is reasonable. I probably don't use enough triamcinolone, but I've done it a couple of times, and I do think that it's um, a very reasonable approach as well. So thank you 
uh, for the compliment. Yes, um, are either of us prescribing uh, combo tamsulose and amirabegron in male patients presenting with OAB symptoms? Um, and steroid versus fulguration for Hunter's Legion. So we did talk about the second one. I commonly present um, tam or commonly prescribe tamsulose and amirabegron. I don't typically do it up front together. So I usually try to hone in on which, you know, is the storage symptoms more bothersome or are the voiding symptoms more bothersome? Give the tamsulose and amirabegron first, you know, reassess and then add the second medication. Um, do you give combination up front often, Ashley? No, I do exactly what you just said. Yeah. Yeah. And, I don't and think I, it would be wrong. I, think, I don't yeah. think it would be wrong Maybe. at all. Yeah. So do you routinely use cognitive behavioral therapy for your chronic bladder pain syndrome patients? Um, I don't only because I don't have access, good access to it here, but I think it's amazing if uh, people are sending patients for cognitive behavioral therapy and any form of multimodal, uh, multidisciplinary approach to these patients is really what they need. What do you think, Laura? So I don't personally provide CBT because I don't have the training. Um, mm. But in, in Hamilton, we are really lucky that we have a multidisciplinary pelvic pain clinic. Unfortunately, only for women currently, um, no male patients are accepted there at this time, but they do have CBT there. And I think it's definitely um, a very important part of the treating the whole patient. Is it a psychologist that does it? Yes, they have a psychologist and they actually do group therapy mm -hmm. there as well, as well as CBT. And then they that's have amazing. physio. It's, and all have, it's all OHIP covered. So that's one of the sneakier ways that we can get physio covered in Hamilton as well. That's so good. Um, thanks for the amazing presentation. I was wondering if the IC um, bladder pain syndrome review reported the certainty and evidence or any other qualitative um, of evidence measurements. Um, so I see, I can go back to it. Oh, let's see if this, I'm using this fancy clicker on my phone. So let's see if it's still working. I'm going to go back to the um, actual article and make sure that for whoever's an, uh, asking the question that you have the reference there. Um, uh, so sorry if I didn't, um, yeah, I didn't include, um, so they looked at a mean difference in terms of demographics in some of the clinical presentation. They did um, report the statistics as uh, described here, so reporting mean differences um, and uh, an odds ratio for difference between male and female. So for any of the continuous variables, they converted it to find the mean differences. And for categorical variables, they turned it into an odds ratio. Um, but the reference is there if anyone wants to look at the statistical analysis in more detail for that meta-analysis. Analysis, and I hope that helps to answer your question. That's a great question, and it wasn't um, included in the paper. I think it was CIS. I assume it was CIS, but it wasn't included. And when we were talking about, um, Laura and I were talking about resecting versus biopsying, and I would say that if there's any question that it's not an ulcer and it looks like a urothelial lesion or a nodular lesion or CIS, I certainly don't think you would be faulted to resect it. And in fact, I think that, you know, unless you're hundred percent convinced that that's an ulcer, then it probably should be resected, but at the very least biopsied. Agree. Can I run through the tamoxifen breast cancer safety again, just quickly when this is safe to um, prescribe topical estrogen? So specifically from the paper, oh, do I have it? I don't have it here. But um, specifically from the side. paper, there's a really great chart. Table one has a list of high risk and low risk features. It divides um, kind of high risk features and low risk features. And it's safe to prescribe uh, vaginal estrogen in patients who have, um, you know, in patients who, I didn't include it, I didn't include table one, I should have. Um, but this, you know, it does say here, uh, in patients who are ER positive on tamoxifen, it's reasonable to prescribe um, 
vaginal estrogen if they do not have high-risk features. And then table one has high-risk features, which is usually the only really relevant one, I think, is higher stage. So if they have stage three or four breast cancer, then um, it's less favorable in table one. And there are several other features there, but it's not uh, as relevant. I think it's you know the ER positive versus negative um, expected life expectancy and things like that. Tamoxifen is on the favorable side. I find it difficult to find out this information, especially if you're seeing these patients and, <coughs> excuse me, you know, you're seeing them quickly or you're doing a cysto and you've done your vaginal exam and, you know, and you want to give um, your vaginal estrogen, but you're just not sure. And I find these patients are very nervous about taking uh, anything estrogen related yeah. as well. Definitely true. I think, you know, um, Usually we have access to their cancer, especially if they're on active treatment, they usually have up-to-date mm -hmm. um, cancer clinic notes that outline their hormone status and their receptor status and what they're on um, and what stage they were. So usually finding the information is reasonable. Um, the question is, you know, even if you and a patient's oncologist are in agreement that something is safe based on these guidelines, a lot of patients are not totally comfortable using a vaginal estrogen. Um, even though you know there, you can give them quite a bit of reassurance. I have a lot of patients who say, you know, once I'm done my treatment for my my breast cancer, then let's talk about this again. And mm -hmm. I think that's very reasonable as well, based on patient comfort levels. Um, they're not going to be on treatment forever, and the treatment is long. The hormonal treatment after breast cancer is often quite extended, um, but it's not indefinite. So mirror background trial mirror background. had higher number of acute urinary retention in intervention arm role of PVR in patient selection monitor on treatment. Yes. So of the two trials, there's the match trial and the plus trial. The plus trial did have a higher uh, proportion of patients, six patients um, in the treatment arm compared to one that had an increase in PVR. And they didn't say, you know, what they completely and what they defined as urinary retention, but they said those six patients had urinary retention, even though only two needed catheters. Um, both groups had similar baseline PVRs. So I don't know that screening based on a PVR before starting mirror background would have helped in those cases. Um, but it's hard to know because they don't report the individual PVRs of those in individual patients, right? Um, I typically check a PVR, um, you know, for convenience before uh, put, putting somebody on mirror background just to track it. And honestly, most patients with voiding symptoms and BPH, I often do a Euroflow and PVR. Um, and that helps direct, you know, bladder directed versus prostate directed therapy for me. Um, I often follow people up uh, to double check their PVR, but, you know, honestly, in these current days of many virtual visits where I'm not able to check a PVR over the phone, Sometimes if a patient's symptoms are improved, I don't worry too much about what their PVR is um, after I start mirror background, especially if they had a normal PVR previously. What about you? Yeah, I agree with what you're saying. And certainly in the times of a pandemic, it's not easy to bring any someone back to clinic every three months for a PVR. Um, and also, like, what are you going to do with the elevated PVR? As you said, Laura, if right? the patient's happy, if their PVR is 250 and they're not getting infections and they're not incontinent and you know, they have normal renal function. I think you're probably okay to just leave that, but um, but who knows, we don't have data to support what I just said. But uh, I think if there's anyone that has an elevated PVR to start and significant voiding symptoms, maybe watching them more closely. But um, I mean, certainly don't think you'd be faulted if you did it. But. Is, Is Botox, Botox okay? Yeah. Okay, for non-ulcer disease too. Um, so there are studies, small RCTs, um, and some fairly good size RCTs that look at Botox in non-ulcerative patients, um, either with hydrodistension or versus hydrodistension alone. Uh, I think there are some trials without hydrodistension now, but um, and, and they do have positive results. And I will use Botox in um, my non-ulcerative patients with they have very bad urgency frequency, but also pain with filling, as long as they understand their risk of self-catheterization. And for some of these patients, I will get them to learn how to self-catheterize beforehand. 
And I think this is when it's really important to sort out whether or not they have pelvic floor dysfunction in addition to their bladder pain syndrome, uh, because they're the ones that are going to be the most troubled, I think. What do you yeah, think, Laura? I agree. I agree completely. The other time I like to have patients learn CIC before Botox is if they are, um, if I really think they would benefit from Botox and they're a typical OAB or refractory OAB patient who just is stuck on the, I don't want a CIC. Sometimes I have them learn how to CIC and then they say, oh, that wasn't so bad. Let's do the Botox and then they never need it. But, um, you know, that's the other time I do the CIC before the Botox. I agree. And it's interesting. So some of the bladder pain patients, bladder pain syndrome, if they have voiding dysfunction or bad pelvic floor dysfunction, some of them self-catheterize. Some of them have been taught at different times in their life to self-catheterize. Maybe they had to do it after they've had babies. And so I don't think we should write off Botox as an option for treatment for these patients. And I think in some of the trials, like if you look at some patients who are dry um, and pain-free but have to catheterize, then they're, they're happier than, um, like, than, you know, with the pain and the urinary symptoms and not catheterizing. Great. Okay. I think we're all done. Um, so thank you everyone for joining tonight. Um, so uh, as you can see here, post event evaluations will be sent to your emails after the webinar. And so really looking forward to your feedback. Uh, and uh, it's really interesting to do these cases and uh, be talking just to Laura and having everybody listening, but hopefully it was an educational event. <laughs> thank you for your attention. Thank you.